This week we are just about done with our sermon series. We're talking about a life in Christ and how that changes the way that we live. And specifically, as we get ready for the Thanksgiving holiday, we're talking about a life of Thanksgiving. What does that mean? And who are we and what are we actually thankful for? This sermon was originally recorded at Castle Rock Middle School, November 22nd, 2015. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Uh, what a great privilege it is. We continue our series, Life We Just Have This Week and Then Next Week. So this week we're talking about Thanksgiving, as I mentioned before. Next week we're talking about this life. With, here we're talking about life here. We're going to be talking about life to come. And I probably should have been doing that if I'm following the pericope, but I've told you the hardest part about the pericope. So the pericope is this big, long term that says you follow the church year, and the end, these last three weeks are kind of the end time season. Does anyone know that? So it's the end time season, so they cover like Saints Triumphant and Christ the King and Last Judgment. And you're like, oh, those are the same thing, kind of. And that's exactly, I've explained this to you every year. My first year preaching, I was really excited, so I, I gave everything I could on that one sermon, and then I wasn't looking ahead at the time, you know, I was treading water. And then I get to the next week, I'm like, what, end of the world again? And then, and so I gave everything I'd left, you know, I'm like just like squeezing the end of my applesauce bag, you know, just trying to get something out of it. And then the next week it's the end of the world again. And then you get into Advent, I'm like, oh, thank goodness, we can at least talk about Mary and baby Jesus. But that's not what the readings are. The readings are John the Baptizer coming saying, repent and be prepared. Four more weeks. So at that point, I said, I'm not going to preach the end times. I'll just, so next week we'll cover the end of the world and I will give you everything I have. The whole applesauce bag will be next week. So we'll be excited about that. Christ the King, we're going to touch on. And, um, but this week we're talking about Thanksgiving. But we struggled, I think, a little bit last week. I saw some serious faces as we preached about helping people. I think that's kind of a serious, difficult topic as we talk about what we can do to be helpful, to help people. And I think there's some difficult things with that. The hardest part about helping people, I think, is one, it's hard. Like, this is not an easy thing to do, so it's hard. And I think there's reasons why it's hard, and here's one of them that I uh, talked about. Empathy versus sympathy. So there's a distinction in those words that kind of word nerds make, but empathy is saying that I feel the pain that you have. I can, I've been there. I know what you're feeling. My heart goes out like um, an, an example would be if you heard about the parish shooting, someone who's really empathetic, even if they have not experienced that, their heart kind of breaks and they're really disturbed about it. Other people, they're like, you know, it's not, I don't live in Paris, big deal. Non-empathetic versus empathetic. Sympathetic just means that even though you can't like put yourself in that place, you still have feelings of compassion. So the Bible really calls us to have both to have, um, a, it says we should love mercy, to feel for people who are in need. I'll give you a few examples that make sense. Um, and one serious one I'll start out with. I, early on in my ministry, I didn't fully understand if someone would tell me they had a miscarriage until I had a miscarriage of our own. And so once you're in that place, the emptiness that goes with it, the fact that you don't really talk about it, the, how um, both of us in hindsight are kind of, we're brain dead for a while and just emotionally kind of void because it hurts so much, now, I'm not saying I could understand exactly what people have gone through, but at least my heart has some more empathy than it would have. Maybe it's something simple, though. You, um, you're a super intense workout person, and you're trying to describe this to someone who's never done it. It's hard for them to make sense. But if you've worked hard enough where, like, the oxygen to your brain starts to cut out, and it, you get tunnel vision, and it gets blurry, and you can't quite see straight, if you've been through that suffering that's just awful, you can't quite explain, there's no way you can describe that to someone until they have been there and they think, like, this is the worst feeling ever, right? 
until you've been there. So you've been there. So I haven't worked in all the jobs you've had. I've never had cancer. Uh, both my parents are still alive. The, uh, there's a lot of things that as a pastor, I can't have the full empathy with you. But I also don't experience full joy. I, I don't know the full joy or pain of childbirth. I never will. I mean, it's not quite the same, right? So what does this have to do with helping people is that we can't always, we're limited in how much we can feel for how much someone is hurting. Because many of us have never been there. I mean, we've never probably been into a place where we're homeless or we're living in our car or we literally have had no money. You know, it's been tight maybe, but have you really had no money for necessary medical things? Have you been there or have you never maybe experienced the desperation of no safety net of any cash whatsoever or a family? You know, like if something really bad happened to you, I'm guessing... 90% of you know some family member that would say, hey, I can help you out. There's people that just don't have that. And so that's that's one aspect that makes helping people hard is we just can't fully understand um, how alone or the kind of pain that they have. We just can't. We can try. We just can't get it. The second one one is, I think, more frightening, and that's the one we touched on last week, and it's in the reading today. It's that we do see people in need. We look around and see that there's people who need our help, but I said, in our arrogance, we say, you know what, the blessings that I have, the money and the time that I have are my own. This was alluded to in the reading, if you remember. So I skipped the first part. This is in Deuteronomy chapter 8. He says, I gave you, this is um, Moses talking on behalf of God. So I gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors never known, to humble and test you so that in the end it might go well with you. What did God want that would go well He says, because otherwise you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. And I think that one's much more frightening, not just that I'm not someone who's unfeeling or uncaring. Many of us know someone like that. But it's just when you see someone in need, you just say, you know what? I know they need help. I just don't care because my time my efforts, my money, it, it's hard to have a good job, and it's hard to save, and it's hard to have a plan. And, and every single person has a plan for their time and their money. Just sometimes you don't want to include someone else in that slice of pie. The third thing, which I didn't touch on last week, it, I think the hardest. Because even if you get to the point where you say, you know what, I do need to help people in this world. I need to be the center of change to actually do something. There's no easy win. I don't know if there's ever an easy win where you can feel like with 100% confidence this step of aid that I'm going to do for someone is good. It's just, it's mixed always. And I I think a prime example, and I don't want to get political, but a prime example is when we contemplate, do we let in Syrian refugees? Like your heart goes out to so many people who are hurting, but you also know that there's a threat. There's no there's no easy answer. It's not like black and white that we just say, you know, do this or that, and now we're good. We, we don't let them in or we do let them in. Either way, you feel kind of terrible because you're wondering, is this really any, the right thing to do? The same thing happens when you give money to someone on the side of the road. The same thing happens when you support one of your family members. The same thing happens. Maybe the, we're having a food drive, and I don't want to quell that. Food drive you feel pretty good about because, like, what do you do with a can of beans That's you know, would be inappropriate? Unless you find out someone got murdered with a can of beans, and then you'd feel terrible. But for the most part, if you are actually stepping into someone's life to mentor or help or give of your time, there's no easy win, and I think that's the most challenging thing all about it. Today's topic is way easier. 
So that's why, that's why I set that up. Today's topic's way easier. We're talking about Thanksgiving and uh, a heart of thanks that we're going to have. So one of my favorite things to do, one of my favorite institutions, besides Amazon Prime and Audible.com, so that, that's the same company, so I'm just it's subsidiaries, is uh, the Douglas County uh, Library, which is really fantastic. If you want a book or you want to get something, you can get a book on tape or a CD, you're going on a trip, you just like plug it in. Have you done that? And it just appears. I think that's fantastic. So once in a while, I look up like what's the best movies to see or is there any movie buffs? This is like the biggest movie week coming up this weekend. Usually the biggest movies start about two weeks ago and then they, they're starting to slide down and then they get a bump this weekend because people are sick of their relatives. I'm just guessing. At, you know, about Thursday night, they're like, hey, we should see a movie. Or three. We should see, let's go to three movies tomorrow. You know, so th- this is one of the busiest weekends that we run into. And so I was looking up great movies and what's the greatest movies of all time? Usually, number one, Citizen Kane. I'm not sure about that. I'm not smart enough and artsy enough to know why it's good because I watched it. I'm like, nothing there. Um, Casablanca, I thought was pretty good. Amy just brought home from the library breakfast at Tiffany's. Have you seen that? So that's some people's favorite movie. Um, I don't know if I'd include myself in that same thing. So I'm probably just more immature and I just like action movies or something like that. But I looked up foreign films. I'm not going to rant anymore about a boy's life or a bird man. Um, but I looked up foreign films, and I bet you're going to recognize it from the cover, even if you haven't seen it. Have you ever seen this one? This is, this is really one of the most successful foreign films. Amelie is, I think, I, I can't do it right, but Amelie, it's a Swedish name, but she's French. And it's a delightful story, so let me just tell you a little bit about it if you haven't seen it. So I wouldn't recommend that your little kids see it. Like 16 and older would probably be okay, because it's kind of like this delightful fairy tale kind of film. And she lives in Paris, and she does kind of these practical joke kind of things, but to make people happier. Well, she catches a glimpse of this guy who goes around to, like, those photo booths and collects the discarded pictures. And she's intrigued by this, so then she, she tracks and finds out, like, they strike up a friendship, and she, he kind of lets her into his world. And she's kind of wondering what he does with all these scraps of photos, and she sees that he puts them into photo albums, and they're like arranged beautifully. Like among chaos, he, he makes something beautiful. Now, how many of you feel guilty right now? You're like, this last year, I'm guessing you had less than 100 photos developed. We, Amy and I had 125 photos developed this last year total, but I think it's the same picture for a Christmas card. But I mean, otherwise, so now I feel guilty. This guy's getting trash, and he's making it into photo albums, and the rest of us haven't even finished a baby book for child number three. Did, did, does anyone happen to you? Yeah, that's exactly. I was child number four. There's no photos of me whatsoever. My parents don't know I exist except the birth certificate. My sister, she's got everything. Uh, the... Um, so I'll just lay that guilt aside. So it's kind of, she can't help, Emily can't help following, falling in love with this guy, but he doesn't quite just see it as taking like chaos and making beauty. The way that he sees it is he's taking like a memory of that person, at least for that moment, so that it can last. Because really without memory, someone's dead. And, and I don't know, we'll talk serious just for a little bit. Um, how many generations do you remember I think it's remarkable how fast things disappear. Um, you probably know your grandparents, I'm assuming, but how many of you have vivid memories of your great-grandparents? Maybe if they lived in town or something like that. my case, I never met either of my great-grandparents, uh, grandfathers, but my great-grandmother, 
she was uh, <laughs> she's like legendary because she would make a dress. She would get an idea they're going to go to a dance. She would go home and make a dress for the dance that day. So, and she had all kinds of bowls of candy corn. So I have to make two assumptions. One is that she loved candy corn, or two, she hated it, and that's all that was left in her candy. I can't, I can't decide which, but that's all I know. I met her like three times total. Ruby was her name. And, and that's it. So it's, isn't it amazing how fast like a generation of people disappear? And even if your parents are really into like this um, genealogies and stuff like that, you see a few photos, but I, I've got a great-grandfather, look back, Harry Houdini. I mean, that's the extent of my knowledge of any started uh, a lumberyard. And, but, you know, that's kind of it. And there's, I was reading a book by Kate Morton. Does anyone know Kate Morton? <laughs> good, because then I can pretend it's a manly book. Uh, this is like, it's one step closer to manliness than like fried green tomatoes would be over here, and then it would be Kate Morton books right there, but they're really kind of intriguing. They're very good, and so I was listening to one, but one of the characters said, if you are, they were into art and writing, and they said, if you can produce art, it lasts forever, and then the other person argued, well, there's one other reason people remember you, and you could kind of guess, notoriety. If you do something so beautiful, it will be remembered. If you do something so terrible, it will be remembered. But for the most part, things disappear. It's just like gone. So that's what um, legacy and memory. Legacy, I think, is a little bit different because you're passing on not just the memory of you, you're passing on what's most important. And the, the Israelites actually had a law to make sure that you don't disappear from the history books. So before digital cameras and Facebook, isn't that cool on Facebook? If you follow Facebook, you, it pops up like four years ago today. You're doing the exact same thing. No, it doesn't say that. No, it's usually something fun and exciting, and you're like, man, I was in Mexico. <laughs> That's, but you remember these things, and it's not just remembering you. It's this legacy of passing down things that are worthwhile. So the Leverite Law, if we ever do a sermon series on really weird things in the Old Testament, this is definitely going to be included in it. The Leverite Law said this, if a man got married and they had no children and he dies, his brother's obligation was to marry his wife. And if they have a child, that child takes the name of his older brother. That fits into the weird category, but what, what's the point of it? The point is that that name doesn't die out, that somehow your name can last. And you see something even cooler, I think, with the, we've talked about Adam the last couple, couple weeks. Adam lived to be 930 years old, and just think how cool that was. So he's probably born in the garden. He obviously wasn't a baby, but he was born like the prime of life, as I said, 39 years old. And so he retires at 65 because there was actually money in Social Security then. And this is the whole point of him living 900 years so he could stick it to the government for like 850 years. Like this would be like the very case why you wouldn't have it. You'd be like, Adam. Or, or is it that... He, first generation, you could actually sit on his lap. I just met my great-grandmother a couple times, and she was so frail, about 89 pounds or something. I couldn't sit on her lap, but imagine sitting on Adam's lap as he explains, let me tell you a story, that there was beauty and perfection, and then chaos came, and that person who's making things right is God, and the story of chaos turned to beauty is the story of a promised Savior. I think that would be incredible, and it's passing down what's most important. Today, we talk about memory, and you can't, as I tried to allude to with the kids, to really be thankful for something, you can't just remember the thing. You have to remember the who who brought it. And that's kind of what we're going to be talking about today. This is from um, if you, the story of uh, Jesus and the ten lepers. Very familiar story. It's pretty short. So now on his way to Jerusalem, and they go up to Jerusalem. It's up on a hill. 
Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. And you've probably heard preachers talk about no one went to Samaria. They would actually go around it. So he's traveling on this, and he's going into a village. Ten men who had leprosy, they meet him, but they stood at a distance. And they call out in this loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, go show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. He was a Samaritan. Jesus asked him, we're not all ten cleansed. Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Familiar story? Yeah, naturally. A couple things that I think kind of stand out. So I'll just definitions on some things. When you Leprosy is, when used in the Bible, is like a collection of diseases generally, skin diseases. It's not one in particular. But often it refers to one in particular when we think of it. And that, I think, would have been a painful disease because these men, I mean, just kind of put your, empathize with them for a minute. You've got 10 people who are no longer identified by, like, their last name. They're no longer identified with the job they had. They're no longer identified with their hobby or they were homecoming king, or they're no longer identified with being the, the most handsome or the best athlete or the best at whatever. Now when people see him, they just think those are the 10 sick guys. I mean, just think, does your heart go out a little bit? And the disease that they had um, was really particular as we talk about leprosy today, if it corresponds directly, is they lose nerve feeling, and we've talked about that before. They lose feelings in their nerves so that they can't, the reason um, they lose their hand or they lose their nose or they lose their feet is not like their foot gets sick and it just falls off. It's, they have no nerves to it, so you can imagine if you're just talking like this and you're banging your hand, eventually they have broken bones and they can't even feel it, or they have a stone. You've had like a, um, I just put my shoes on yesterday and there's like a pebble like this big. I feel like a princess in the pea. But, you know, I couldn't stand it. I had to unbuckle the whole things and shake this one thing out. They, they don't feel that. So now that's just tearing up your foot, tearing up your foot when they cook. They can't feel when it's too hot. And what do you think the most painful part about that is? I, I think it's not so much that they have this disease. I think it's you would remember what you used to have. I think it's not so much like um, they get a cut and they can't feel it, but you can't cut through the market anymore and see people and like just think how often they dreamed about the smells of just like going through the market and just everyday things. Or it's not that you get a rock in your shoe. It's just like you can't sit on the shore of the Jordan River and throw rocks with your kid. Or it's it, like it's not that you can't feel your cheek get bitten. It's like there's no one to kiss that cheek. And I think there's this sense of mourning. I mean, just think about that. You're just by yourself with a bunch of sick people, and this is who you are. You're no, you could have been the most popular and cool and successful, but now you're just that sick person. I wonder, I wonder if it was like they cry out to Jesus, and I bet they literally cried out because here was this healer who would actually do something about it. Here's the one who is prophesied about who said that he is going to come and change the world, not just in a spiritual way, but he's going to help and bring healing. Do you think they dreamed about the day they would get healed? I wonder that, because Jesus said, go show yourselves to the priest, and there's this elaborate ceremony that happens when you are healed. Like, you're sick. You can't just, like, walk in and say, hey, I'm healed. You have to show yourself to the priest to prove that now you are healed. Do you think they dreamed about that? Like your wedding day? 
mean, just think about your wedding day. If you're usually a little girl, dreams about their wedding day, and they can picture exactly what it's going to be like in their head, and um, you know, or a week away. You know, so um, you, you, how exciting that is! You can picture what it's going to be like, and you go through all the sounds in your head. Or, or little boys probably more often dream of making like the game-winning shot, right? No one dreams about delivering like the game-winning presentation, do they? I mean, that doesn't. And I had <laughs> no kid dreams of the conference call. But you dream about some moment and you can just see it in your head and it's just like you saw it. Because I wonder, like with this whole elaborate ceremony to go and stand before the priests, it's pretty elaborate. I wonder if it's like me and my sprinklers. Like every year when I blow up my sprinklers, I literally have to look it up. I keep a note. On, every new year I go out there and I'm like, this year is the year. I'm going to remember which part to put it in. I never, ever remember. And then I have to go sleep back to the house read and scroll and make sure I do all the things right. I wonder if they just, you know, it's, they didn't think about that. Or I wonder, in their dreams at night, if they just went through that process in this dream of standing before the priest in the whole thing and they just know their lines and they know exactly what to say and they say, look, I'm healed. I wonder if that's what they thought. I, I don't think it's not that they, were, they weren't thankful. And some pastors will say that, that. No one is thankful, you know, they just went along the way. I just... I just bet they couldn't wait to fill in the gaps of all the things they lost. Right? I mean, I couldn't wait. I mean, to hold my kids again, to give them a squeeze, and to get a kiss from my wife, and to go just do work. You know, I, I bet I, I couldn't wait to just go work in the garden. So I don't think it's that they, they were so sad and not thankful. They were thankful for what they now had. And I think this is the struggle with Thanksgiving. It's because the memories we look back on are not always good memories, right? It's not like we just look back and it's all these blessings. Maybe you got a promotion, that's awesome. And maybe you have a brand new baby, that's great. And maybe you, your sickness is gone and that's great. And, or you've had a year that's been really challenging. And you're thinking about the things you lost, which could be a person, it could be a job, it could be your house, it could be savings. It, but for most of us, it's not like all good or all bad. How do you give thanks when you stand in the midst of good things and bad things? How are you still thankful? Are you just like, God, I'm only going to be thankful if I get good things? The guys who came back, I don't think it's that they weren't thankful. There's only one who came back. I think the reason you could stand in the middle of that is that he recognized my thankfulness comes because I remember not what I got, but who gave it to me. And he could think back, and he's the one. The others, I wonder if they looked at him just like Jesus was a prophet. Was he like Elijah or John the Baptizer? Who knows? Obviously, he's got some powers and some healing came. But only one recognized, as it said, came back to thank God. No one has returned to give praise to God except this foreigner. I wonder if they even realized that Jesus was God standing before them. Jesus was the one who actually brings these blessings. Jesus is the one who brings this healing. Remember that movie, Amelie, and that quirky guy who is collecting all these things about things that are forgotten? A person kind of is dead if you don't remember him. Your great-great-great-grandfather, I bet you don't know anything about. Jesus does not want you to happen to you with him. And just think about this. The center of our worship life, really, the center of the whole point of how they set up worship is communion. And there's different names for communion, and I just shared this in Bible Basics, but there's different names for communion. There's Lord's Supper, there's communion, 
But one that is really unique that we don't use in our circles is the Eucharist. Are you familiar with that term? It's a word that means thanksgiving. And in the midst of, probably if you think about like the center of that very process is your pastor stands before it and he says, our Lord Jesus Christ on the night he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave thanks. And he gave it to them saying, take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. How do you stand with good things that have happened in your life and bad things and still have the same thankful heart? I think we can get a lesson from a hymn writer. Has anyone ever, do you know this hymn? I had to rank it a little bit small. Now thank we all are gone. So as a kid, I had to learn this. This was 610 in the new hymnal. And I'll sing it for you in a second. Hold on, I gotta, <clears throat> I'll sing it in a minute. All right. The We'll sing it together, a cappella. If, if you know it, does any, can someone start us out? Uh, well, I'll, let me tell you the story first. I'm getting kind of... Getting, Martin Rinker is the guy who wrote this. And you kind of think like, okay, where did he stand when he wrote this hymn? Is it like, did he just have his new baby and then he writes this hymn of praise? That's often what happens. When some great event happens, they sing this praise to God. A great example is when they cross the Red Sea, what happens? Miriam gets to the other side and she writes a song. Uh, Mary finds out that she's going to give birth to the Savior of the world. She writes a song, right? This is, these are good things. You get a job promotion. Maybe you write a song. I don't know how this works. Um, but here, Martin Rinker, you're thinking, well, what great event happened? Well, it's the 1600s, and if you know European history, I've got to go for you. So um, 1,000, the church splits around there. 1,300 is the bubonic plague. Things are not good. And then 1,500 is Martin Luther, and we got the printing press and things, and things are churning along. 1,600s are really a dud, and the 1600s is known for, like, disease and trouble, and the, I, I can't remember quite the name of his city, Eilenburg, I think it is. Well, Martin is the pastor there. It's a walled city, and it's the middle of the Thirty Years' War, which is, like, 1618 to 1648, and this is way too many facts for most of you. Um, but in the midst of this, they start packing this city full with these refugees where their city got destroyed, and it's overcrowded, and people get sick, and all the pastors die except Martin. So you can imagine that. He's the one pastor in this packed city. I can imagine that. And he was doing, uh, in one year, he did 4,000 funerals. 4,000. 4,000. Like, there's 365 days. I mean, just doing some math, I should have done it in advance so I didn't look dumb. Uh, four, three, four times three, that's 12 a day. Is that right? 12 funerals a day? I mean, I don't, how does that even work? I, don't, I only eat three times a day, so you'd have, to do, you'd have to do like four between each meal. You're like, I got four funerals. How, how does that even work? Do you know one of the people he buried was his kids? And one was his wife? And in the midst of that, and that's why I, I think this is a great example, in the midst of that, he writes this song, which is one that we had to memorize, but someone start me out so we can sing this together. Hmm, is that about right? It's going to be right if no one else steps up. Kale, help me out. You don't know it. Kale did not grow up in a Lutheran school where I did. So, all right, I'm going to just go, and if it's off, we're just going to suffer through it. We'll just say it. You ready? Now thank we all our God with hearts and hands and voices who wondrous things has done in whom this world rejoices who from our mother's arms has blessed us on our way with count 
limitless gifts of love and still is ours today. He doesn't say, and these things are ours today. He doesn't say, my kids are ours today. He doesn't say, my wife is ours today. He says, is still ours today. And that is our Savior who brings forgiveness, the very one who gives us every single blessing. Heavenly Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we walk in this life, there's good things that happen. There's things that have been taken from us, and our heart mourns. We think about the lepers, so many things they lost, and they longed, no doubt, to get back again. We've lost things. We've lost jobs. We've lost friends. We've lost spouses. In this year, let us look back and have a memory of the most important thing, not what we have, but who gave it to us, and help us have a life of thanksgiving that steps forward with courage in the midst of pestilence or trouble, but also in the midst of joy that recognizes it. it's not the work of our hands, it's not the strength of our arms, but instead it's your blessings and your mercy that has come to us.